this week on the Backtable Podcast. So from the early patients, it looked like the ulnar wavelengths required the fewest interventions to mature the fistula, or fewer, right? Radial wavelengths required the most, and ellipsis kind of fell in between. And I think ultimately that all boils down to what your artery size is, right? I think a bigger artery and you get a little bit bigger flow, you can get, if you have more flow from the get-go, you can get more flow in your cephalic system. Ultimately, it's the target is 500 milliliters per minute of flow in your cephalic or median cubital to where I can run it on dialysis. So if I've got a thousand of flow, as long as I got 500 at the top, I don't really care what, the, what where the rest of it is. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Backtable Podcast. If you're a new listener, welcome. For all of our regular listeners, welcome back and thank you for listening. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or our website, which is backtable.com. Very easy to remember. Subscribe to the show, leave us a review, or reach out to us on social media. Now a quick word from our sponsor. BD provides clinical education and training through the BD Peripheral Intervention Advanced Healthcare Providers courses. The BD Advanced team offers programs on advanced endovascular management of AV access, emerging techniques in the management of CLTI and venous disease, as well as many different resident programs and peer-to-peer opportunities. Contact your local BD representatives to learn more or visit the BD Advanced webpage. Now, back to the show. I'm excited to welcome back Dr. Nagai Mala interventional nephrologist. Uh, We have Nagai back on the show to discuss and give us an update on endovascular creation of AV fistulas. Um, Nagai, I think we originally heard back from you, let's see, my notes say August 2020, almost three years ago. It's been a bit. Think about that. August 2020, we're like in the throes of COVID when we're talking to Uh, you. Yeah. So um, we wanted to get an update on how the practice is going. And um, I'll refer um, the audience to that episode. It was episode 77. So go back and check out that episode. There's a lot of good stuff in there, and we're going to continue to build on that today. Um, so Nagai, if you want, just give us a brief introduction about uh, background and kind of what your practice looks like these sure. days. So I practice in uh, Dallas. I'm with Dallas Nephrology Associates. We have two vascular access centers, and I'm managing and a director at one of them. And uh, the entire endovascular practice is based out of uh, that center with me. Uh, and so in addition to the normal dialysis access that we do, angiograms, declots, catheters, all that fun stuff. You know, we've been doing our endovascular fistula program since 2019. So when you caught me, we were almost a year and a half into it. I really should have listened to that episode last night. This, I woke up this morning at like 5 a.m. and I went on a jog and I was like, I'm just going to play this one. It was a good episode. One, I thought our audio was good and you killed it. It's more of, <laughs> I remember, I, I, I'm curious to know what I said. It would, I'm, I'm going to, because I didn't realize it was that long ago. Yeah. Yeah. Feels like just yesterday. Um, I mean, we went through like the basics, like the building blocks, like your referral patterns, how you pre-op patients, like what you look for on the preoperative ultrasound. You gave a basics of like both devices and then um, a little bit of like fistula maintenance on the back end. It was just kind of like broad strokes, like how to kind of get an endo AV fistula up and running. Um, but today, so we'll just assume that um, people haven't listened to that. So we can just start with like... Um, referral patterns. Like, how are you still getting these patients? Last time you told me that, you know, you're in an, you're an interventional nephrologist in a big nephrology group, a lot of in referrals, same thing. Yeah. So I'm fortunate from that perspective, right? Uh, I think, you know, surgeons are fortunate for that. And an access surgeon can be any specialty, right? It doesn't have to be vascular necessarily, but if they've already got a referral pattern for vascular access and they can just 
pick up a device and say, well, instead of doing open for you, I'm going to do endo for you. And if endo doesn't work, then we'll just do open at the same time. And you know, you leave one way or the other. So a surgeon has an easy referral pattern. Uh, I have an easy referral pattern in the sense that they're pretty much, you know, 90% of my referrals are from my partners. And so they just, you know, they're within the practice. Most of the referrals come pre-dialysis to me still. So they're office patients that are not on dialysis yet. Uh, I get a few people that have started dialysis with a catheter because they were crash or because they came in from some other system that was not part of our practice. And then they come to me after, but most of the time they're, they're not on dialysis yet. And uh, so it's just a matter of kind of an internal reminder and marketing to my, to my peers and partners. So mine doesn't require a lot of work to get the referral going still. That's good for you. Um, so once they get sent to you, what does it look like after that? Like office visit, like, how does that go? What's the workup? So they come to my, they come to the center and I'll do a vein mapping there. And basically at the time of the vein mapping, we decide if they're a candidate and for, you know, endovascular fistula or a surgical. And then if I think they're better suited with a surgical access, then I'll just get them referred off to the surgeon. My partners, I know the surgeons that my partners like to use. So I just kind of refer appropriately kind of thing. Yeah. And so the vein mapping, all ultrasound? All ultrasound. In order to screen for the perforating vein and the deep anatomy, it has to be ultrasound. You can't do a floral vein mapping. Got it. And so just in, in broad strokes, like what are you looking for? Has anything changed as far as like who's candidate, who's not a candidate based on the anatomy? This is one of the changes, right? So, you know, the technical definition, right, is your superficial veins have to be big enough two, two and a half millimeters. So an upper arm cephalic, median cubital vein, basilic vein, right? That's going to be your outflow vein that you're going to use. So basically they have to be a candidate for a surgical upper arm fistula first. The next is your perforating vein has to be big enough. So two millimeter diameter across both devices. You've got ellipsis, you've got wavelength. Both of them say two millimeter diameter for your perforating vein. And then for, you know, the wavelength, you look at radial veins, ulnar veins as well, and two millimeter diameters there. So two millimeters is basically your, your minimum cutoff. Uh, and so anybody that fit that threshold was kind of a candidate for me. So I was doing a lot from that perspective, but what was happening was a lot of them weren't maturing well. And so I've kind of shifted. I'm a little more selective. So that kind of broad definition may or may not be enough for me to say, yeah, I'm going to do you anyway. And part of it boils down to what are the brachial vein diameters that I didn't really take into factor then. Let's Let's back up and go in, into anatomy real quick. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Because then I can come back and finish that answer, right? So you've got your superficial vein, cephalic vein, median cubital vein. Most of the time they will join at the base of the antecubital fossa. Typically the perforating vein dives down from that junction, or sometimes it's one of the two veins and goes to the deep veins. So at the deep level, you've got your brachial artery, radial artery, ulnar artery, and you've got your paired veins sitting with each artery, right? So you've got a lateral brachial vein, medial brachial vein, lateral ulnar, medial ulnar, all of that. So your perforating vein connects your superficial vein from your cephalic median cubital down to typically your lateral radial vein, and then continues down to your lateral ulnar vein. So, you know, if you've got two levels, one is the ulnar, three levels really. So I've got an ulnar level, a radial level, and a superficial level. My perforator is the escalator kind of between the three levels, right? So... If you make an anastomosis at a deep level, and because this is a side-to-side -side anastomosis, you're going to have multiple outflows in that fistula. So you will have deep flow and you will have superficial flow. And so the goal of the 
endovascular fistula is to get most of that flow into the superficial system to where I can dialyze them. Is there advantage to multi-outflow? Probably, maybe. I think probably, yes. But sometimes what happens is that deep brachial veins, those end up stealing a lot of the flow. And so I end up with a fistula that is a deep fistula. And so all of my flow ends up in the brachial veins. And I've done that a few times where, because, and part of it was because I hadn't taken brachial vein size into, so now coming back to my vein mapping, I hadn't taken brachial vein size into consideration. So you have a max di or a min diameter for cephalic basilic, and now you have like something like a max diameter for the. So, well, and so now what it is, is I look at a brachial vein and I kind of look at the pathway of flow. So I, I kind of anticipate where my anastomosis is going to be. And I look at the flow proximal to it. And let's say the anastomosis is going to be, you know, a radial artery, radial vein anastomosis. Well, if the perforating vein is huge, two millimeters, and the cephalic vein is two and a half, three millimeters, and then the radial vein proximal to the perforating vein sometimes actually gets smaller. Well, then I can guess, okay, fine, most of my flow is going to go superficial. On the ulnar side, a lot of times that ulnar vein is large, like two and a half, three millimeters. And sometimes I'll see a brachial vein of three plus millimeters, sometimes even four millimeters baseline. So if I have a four millimeter brachial vein and a two and a half millimeter cephalic vein, then I worry that this is going to be a competitive outflow to the point that it's going to hinder my maturation, right? And so now it's, and there's a few people I've talked to about this and, and, you know, a lot of the guys now kind of have an unofficial kind of guideline in our heads, right? Nothing written, nothing that we can prove, but it's kind of like, well, if the brachial vein's twice the size of my superficial vein, yeah, this is going to be a challenge. I got you. Okay. It's more of an art right now. There's not like firm and fast guidelines on it, but you have to get a feel for the anatomy and understand like the relationship of the brachial vein to the superficial system and understand that flow is preferentially going to go into the bigger vein. It's going to go into the bigger vein. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. So, gotcha. Right. Gotcha. It's, it's always the path of least resistance. Right? right, right. Okay. And so now you have to, by ultrasound, We've learned the guys that have done this enough, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it takes, you know, more than a, a, a year and, and, you know, it, it, it takes fa failures to learn this, not successes. Of course. Right. right, right. To recognize that by ultrasound, I have to kind of figure out, okay, where do I think the flow is really going to go? And if I feel like the flow is going to go brachial, then I've fought those battles too many times to where they just don't work enough, well enough to where I feel like it's worth the battle. Okay, not that I want to pin you down to anything, because you already said it's not like a firm guideline, nothing's written down, but like in your head, what's what's a patient who might not be a candidate because you're going to get preferential brachial flow? I think it's the size of the brachial vein, because most of the time you've got two brachial veins, right? Same, you've got a lateral medial. Sometimes you get a third, but sometimes you have a single brachial vein. And so that usually, if you've got a patient that's got a single brachial vein, you're looking at a three and a half, four millimeter brachial. And so if you, that's just, that's where it's going to go. It's one of those things where I just look at, and the, and, and the other thing is, is, and I've noticed patients that have small brachial veins on vein mapping, for whatever reason, they will, they're so small that I don't coil them on index procedures for the wavelength, right? The wavelength is usually an index coil. Uh, but I've seen a couple of brachial veins that are so small that oh, I don't need to coil this one. And then they come back later and the brachial veins huge and flow is all deep and, like, well, what do you know? 
So that brachial vein is really kind of something that I say has now gets my attention when it did not before, because it's not part of your official mapping criteria, right? Because it's, yeah, if it's two millimeters, you can get flow into the superficial system. You can mature a superficial vein as long as you get enough flow there. But if you've got a brachial vein that's huge, and sometimes it doesn't even need to be huge. Sometimes it just comes back and they're like, it's all brachial, Dr. Mall. I'm like, well, how did that happen? Because he didn't have one before. So with coils, I'm not aggressive with my coils. I know a lot of, in the beginning, I used to be. So this is something else that's, that's changed, right? Because it's like, oh, fine, you've got a big brachial vein, just coil it, plug it, whatever, right? Then you're done. So as these mature or start to mature, a lot of them, there's a valve in the perforating vein or at the kind of at the, you know, ulnar perforating junction, or they just get a stenosis, the perforating vein. And so I've had, again, early cases. So if you end up coiling a brachial vein, and then you come back later and say, oh, my medial coil has now diverted flow into my lateral brachial vein. So I drop in on the lateral coil. And so you basically, if you coil off all the brachials, right? And then you've got a perforating vein stenosis. Well, if your anastomosis is intact and you've got a liter of flow, where's it all going to go? It's not going up into the cephalic. It's not going into the, upper, into the upper arm or into the brachial. It just turns around and drives deep into the forearm. And so let me ask this, Chris, if you've got a dialysis patient comes in with, you know, arm swelling, what immediately, what do you think? Well, stenosis, outflow stenosis. Where? But where? Um, is it a fistula? Yeah. Let's say a fistula. Uh, right? Central. Yeah. I mean, guess so. I mean, I don't know. Sometimes cephalic arch or. Oh yeah. Okay. Cephalic arch regional, but. But you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It, it, it's upflow like, you know, shoulder and beyond. A patient comes in with arm swelling and you've already, you already know where you're going to look. You've got a couple of places that you say, okay, this is what we're going to study today. I'm not going to, if some patient comes in with arm swelling, you're not going to do a retrograde and look at the arterial anastomosis. For sure. For sure. So what happens is these endofistulas, if you end up coiling all the brachials and you undiagnose a perforating stenosis, or then they come in with a classic below the elbow forearm swelling. Only. Well, so like, is this like, so the coiling thing, I mean, this actually comes up in just regular fistula maintenance. It's like, you know, the, the conventional teaching, at least for me, was always like, you know, don't chase all these collaterals, chase your stenosis. So is this something that's remedied, like you can remedy just by, you know, angioplasty of the perforator stenosis? Yeah. Okay. But this is something that I wasn't always doing in the beginning. I see. I see. Got it. Right? Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. So, got it. so the algorithm was because the, the degree of perforating stenosis was, was kind of unrecognized. Right. And so, yeah, so they come in for a follow-up, let's say a thousand milliliters of brachial artery flow. So again, just to rehash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Go through this because this is like a, kind of a key component about like the inflow and outflow. Your Doppler studies, you're going to look at your brachial artery and that volumetric flow is going to be representative of your fistula outflow. In a surgical fistula where it's a single artery, single vein, you can assume your brachial artery flow is going to equal your fistula flow. Right. But in an endovascular fistula, your brachial artery flow is going to be divided between your superficial veins. So that may be cephalic and median cubital plus your brachial veins. So you may have four vessels that you have that 1000 milliliters divided between. And so every follow-up study is analyzing those four vessels or three vessels or however many there are to see where does that flow end up, right? You should be able to sum it all up that your brachial artery is going to equal you know, and you add up your cephalic vein, your median cubital vein, your brachial veins, you should basically uh, sum up to about, you know, what you measured in your brachial artery. So 
assessment is a is there enough flow you know in the artery to kind of flow through that vein and then b where does it go and so if most of it goes into the brachial vein well then it's just well was the brachial vein too big or is that perf is there a stenosis in the perforator and so initially i was not angioplasting all of that right because you do an angiogram and it looks okay so you drop in a break, you drop in another coil, you get a little aggressive with the coiling and you find out it comes back a month later and there's another collateral in the deep system that's picked up and you drop in a coil. There is a recurrent ulnar vein that connects your medial ulnar vein to your basilic vein. So I've seen a few cases where those engorge and you end up with flow that way and it doesn't go through the perforating system and it goes recurrent ulnar vein into a basilic vein. But the basilic vein at that point is too high, too deep to cannulate. So, you know, so it's a so all of this is understanding where the flow is going to go from your anastomosis. The challenge of an endovascular fistula is not making the anastomosis. What's the challenge? Understanding the flow afterwards and where it's going to go. Understanding where your flow is going to go afterwards. Okay. And making it go where you need it to go. And if I feel like I can't make it go where I need it to be for dialysis, I'm not going to do it. Even if they meet the anatomical criteria of two millimeters, two and a half millimeters, whatever it is. So you kind of mentioned that coils were a part of redirecting flow. Has now that algorithm, if I'm hearing you correctly, it may have changed a little bit. And now that like when you go and if you do like your fistulagram, you take a harder look at the perforator and that gets an angio or that gets a plasty with like what, like a five balloon? Six. It's always up to a six. So yeah. So now I no longer coil all brachial veins. If there's a single brachial vein, I'll pack a coil loosely so I can maintain flow through it, right? Because the coil doesn't need to necessarily be occlusive. It's just restrictive. And then if I, sometimes what I'll do is I'll come back and I'll, on a subsequent visit, and add a second coil into that vein to make it occlusive, as long as there is a alternate pathway up the arm that I'm comfortable with, right? I no longer coil all brachial veins because... It's a disaster when that happens and they end up with forearm swelling and then it's, right? The way to save it is and fix it is actually with a Viabon. Okay. So like talk about that a little bit. So like how many plasties until you end up like laying down the Viabon? So I've done Viabons for wavelengths, not for ellipsis because the ellipsis, because it's an asked right to the perforator, typically the challenge of the ellipsis is not so much, is not always the brachial vein. I mean, you, I have had issues with ellipsis in a similar st- setting. Radial vein picks up a lot of flow. But can I use a Viabon to safely land it in the perforator vein, occlude the radial vein, and not get into the radial artery? I'm not confident enough to do that. So that's why I've not done it. It's not that it doesn't happen. It's more of, I don't know that I can land a Viabon exactly the way I need to without compromising something. So I only use Viabons for wavelength cases because usually the anastomosis is deeper and a little bit more distal to the perforating vein. It's not right at the perforating vein junction. Okay. So now, you know, if I've got a stenosis, the perforating vein, and most of my flow is deep, well, if I can wire, you know, all of my interventions for, you know, maturations are through the artery. So I'm wired across the artery, you know, across the anastomosis. And if I can wire into perforating vein and up to the superficial, well, then that gives me a landing and a runway for a Viabon. And so you take the Viabon from basically just above the anastomosis, and I take it up into the perforating vein to where it's not into the superficial. So I don't take it into the cephalic. So I will usually land it 
in the perforating vein. The reason for that is this way, if it ever needs a surgical conversion, I've still left the cephalic vein completely untouched. So it's, it never interferes with, and I, I've had a few that needed, a, a, even after a Viabon, a surgical conversion. And so that way, cephalic vein is completely untouched. Let me go back to so all your maturation cases. Is this only for the endo-AV fistulas that you, you're intervening, like you start with a, a brachial artery stick? Not brachial artery, I wrist. Oh, sorry, so wrist, wrist. artery. Oh, okay, gotcha. But do you also do that for like your maturation cases? Or surgical? Yeah, surgical or? No. Nah, oh, okay, okay. Most, All right. Most of the time I don't, I just stick to fistula. There was actually a nice, you know, Twitter's fantastic for this. And there was actually a little discussion about this once between. You don't hear those words very commonly, like Twitter's awesome for this. But no, there's some, there's some stuff like in the interventional space that is like fantastic. Yeah, I totally agree. Okay, so on med Twitter, there was actually a really nice discussion one time among surgeons and, you know, INs and I think some IRs in terms of, you know, what's the, you know, what's the preferred approach for a maturation. And, and yeah, I think it's a good mix. A lot of people for any fistula will stick the artery, radial artery, go up and do your angioplasty because that way you can get it all in one shot. And if you think the vessel's a little frail and immature, then okay, then you can do that. I'll do a radial artery approach. Usually if it's a non-transposed basilic vein, because Usually if a non-transposed basilic vein fistula is not matured, it's a swing segment stenosis. So that means you got to stick way up high. Yeah, yeah, and gotcha. I just don't like sticking basilic vein. Yeah, down. and then sometimes patient body habitus kind of makes it. Right. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. Okay. Right. So then I stick, stick the artery, I go up. But typically, you know, if I'm sticking a fistula, look, if I'm maturing a surgical fistula after the angioplasty, it's probably ready in two, three weeks. They're going to stick it three times a week, tw- six times over anyway. So why am I afraid to stick it? So that's kind of my take. I'm like, why am I afraid to stick the vein? If my job is to make this vein stickable in two weeks. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Okay, cool. All right. So we're talking about um, how Viabon has kind of played into your algorithm now and you're using it for uh, wavelength cases, right? But not. Yeah. So I think here's actually a good time. You want to segue and just at least like break down ellipsis versus wavelength? Yeah. Okay. So there's, you know, two devices, both hit FDA approval same time back in 2018. I've been using both same time, you know, since 2019. I was part of the ellipsis pivotal trial actually back in 2016, 15. Uh, so I had a little experience. So when people come to me and they say, they ask, they say, hey, what device, which one should I have? The answer is always both. And the way I relate to it is kind of like, well, you know, how many perm casts do you have in your center? Or, you know, I mean, a hospital, the hospital sometimes dictates, but a lot of guys in freestanding centers will have a couple of different perm cast mm-hmm. brands, right? Am I in love with any one brand of Permcath? No, I've got like five or six different brands of Permcath. But obviously if a patient comes in and a catheter's not working and it was placed two weeks ago, well, I'm putting in a different brand because they just might get lucky, right? And so it's not about brand loyalty, it's about anatomical suitability. And so ultimately, if you're doing an endovascular fistula practice, you should have both in hand, right? If you want to serve your patients, you serve them with everything you can do. And anybody that can do one device can do the other device. There's no reason why you can't do both. So the ultimate goal should be have both in hand. And if you've got a big enough practice where you've got multiple interventionalists, then what I typically suggest is, okay, you have, you know, Chris, you start with ellipsis, Aaron, you start with wavelength, train yourselves, get yourselves proficient, and then you guys cross train each other. That's a good tip. Yeah. Very slick. And so that way you've got one vein, you know, one practice, one vein mapping, and then it filters into, you know, your, my hand or my partner's hand. And then once you're good enough, then you swap out. And so that way you're proficient with everybody. If you're a single guy, solo guy, well then, yeah, just flip a coin, pick one, then come back and add the other one later. Gotcha. 
Okay. Can you talk about like why you need both? Like what, like um, the anatomy behind like the choice between ellipsis and wavelength? Yeah. So the wavelength is going to be, like I mentioned earlier, an ulnar vein, ulnar artery anastomosis or radial vein, radial artery anastomosis. So you need that two millimeters of ulnar vein or radial vein diameter. Sometimes ulnar vein, you'll typically get it. Radial vein, you often don't, right? And so also what happens is remember, you know, three level escalator, most of the time, the perforator from the cephalic to the radial is huge, but sometimes that per perforator from the radial to the ulnar kind of tapers off and peters off. And so my sonographer and I kind of, we have our own lingo. P1 is cephalic to radial. P2 is radial to ulnar. So typically what happens, my sonographer maps the patient. I come see the patient. As I'm walking to the patient, she kind of gives me the rundown. And she'll say, oh, P1's great, but P2 is no good. So I know I can't do an ulnar anastomosis right there. And so that becomes kind of the challenge that, okay, well, I can't do an ulnar anastomosis because P2 is no good. So now we look on the radial sides. And so then if the radial vein is no good, well, then we're left with an ellipsis only option. Got it. Is that still how like you kind of think through it? Like you're kind of looking like wavelength versus ulnar, radial? Yeah. So I typically like doing ulnars first if I can. So if I have the options, I'll, I'll look at the ulnar first as a general rule, but then there's other factors to put into play. And, uh, and so it's not a hard and fast rule. And so that's why I, that's why I kind of, you know, I, I think, okay, fine. There's a scenario where, you know, a wavelength only provider would miss out on an opportunity to do an endofistula, right? Uh, if you have ellipsis only, sometimes navigating that perforating vein can be really tortuous and difficult to do because so... Then it's about how, what's the angle of that perforator? How close does it come to the RA? You know, there's a proximity there as well. And sometimes that perforator is big, but then doesn't come close to the radial artery. And instead it goes straight down to the ulnar vein. To the, and so there you're going to miss out on, only you do ellipsis, you'll miss out on a wavelength opportunity. And so the ones that, you know, I feel like, hey, this is, I've seen some S-shaped perforators. Like, well, that's really kind of hard to, to needle down to where I can get to. But if it continues down and if the radial vein's big enough, well, I just make a radial wavelength instead. So that's why I say there's, you know, most patients are candidates for both, but sometimes I feel like, hey, this patient, I would, I think will do better with an ellipsis and this patient will do better with a wavelength. And sometimes I actually say, well, let's block it and decide. And because, you know, when you do the, an arm block and... I, I do an arm block for all of my creations. Okay. The vessels kind of dilate up. Oh, I remember you talking about that in the last episode. So you do the block and you kind of let the anatomy, like whatever one kind of plumps up, then you're like, all right, that's plumps up and then, I, then I decide. Very cool. And so what happens is these really tortuous perforators, you know, because when they're smaller, it's harder to navigate. But then as it dilates, you actually can say, hey, I can draw a straight line right through it. And so then it, you might be able to do an ellipsis or that P2 sometimes that looked too small before looks great after the arm block. And so most of the time I've decided ahead of time, but sometimes I'll say, hey, let's block them and, and uh, rescan and, and make a decision. And so usually when they come back through the day of the, the creation, I rescan them just to make sure it looks good. But sometimes I'll say, no, let's block them first and then we'll rescan them. And then I commit to that decision because it may be a after the block things that are like, oh, you know what? Hmm. That, that, that'll work. You know, this is a question I wish I would have asked you earlier. Will you tell me, Nagai, like how many of these, I mean, you don't have to tell me how many you've done total, but 
in a given week or maybe a given a month, like how many Indo AVFs will you create? Like ballpark? I think I average around eight. Yeah, around eight a month is what the average is right now. Okay, cool. So you've racked up like pretty good experience on this. I map about 20 to 25 people a month. I basically am, am down to about eight a month. So I have not looked at how many that, you know, this kind of the official criteria versus my criteria, how many of them I look at them and I say, I don't want to do you. Yeah, the, maybe if maybe two or three a month, probably, I think. So close to 30 are getting done. So it's about a 30% conversion rate of the page. Yeah, okay. I'm, 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 I'm about 25, 30% capture of my, of my maps, right? Some of them are just not fishly candidates, right? But, you know, some of them just don't have good deep vessels. And I think maybe one or two cases a month are just not, uh, that I look at it and say, you know, it, it ultimately boils down to doing what's right for the patient. I can make a connection. Right, 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 right. It's not that. I can make the connection. I can look at the anatomy and say, yeah, I can make the connection. But then I'm not going to be able to mature this to what you need for dialysis. Or I say, this is going to be a challenging maturation that do we want to go through? You know, I always tell them ahead of time, you will probably require a second procedure. So the way I, I talk to the patients is, you know, index cases really focus on the anastomosis. I make the anastomosis. And then subsequent cases are about maturation and flow development and, and kind of on a boost. I said, sometimes you need a little boost. And if you grow on your own, you're fine. If not, we go boost it. And so they kind of understand that. And so some patients, they're like, what's the alternative? Like, well, alternative, you go to surgery. And I tell them, I think you'll do fine with a surgical fistula. Your superficial anatomy looks great. Your deep anatomy is one of these, eh, I don't like doing this, you know, if I don't have to. But I think you'll do great with a surgical fistula. So I send them to a surgeon. And sometimes the patients kind of, you know, and that's the nice thing about having them there when I map them is we can kind of have that discussion. And they say, look, I'm okay with that. If you tell me it'll, they're, they're like kind of, what's your, what's your ballpark? What the chance of success? I'm like, you know, it's impossible to say, but usually if I feel like it's a 50-50, I, I tend to not do it. So I'm like, ah, it's probably a 50-50. It'll either work or it won't. I mean, it, which is, it, it is. It's either going to work or it's not. So I'm like, yeah, if it's a 50-50, I tend to not do it. Because why am I going to take a 50-50 when I'm confident, when I'm, you know, 85% confident a surgeon's fish will work in of, that patient? Of course, I get that. So one of the uh, things that we had brought up in episode 77, which you probably have no memory of, was we talked about sometimes the comparison is not endo AVF versus surgical like arm AV fistula, but it's like whether you go endo AVF versus forearm. Have you kind of settled that or is that any different? Because originally you kind of gave patients the option, you laid out the pros and cons. Um, I didn't know if like anything like the dust had settled on that argument a little bit. So it's interesting when we were in Paris last year, Alex Malios has been doing this for a long time in Paris and has probably more experience than me, especially with the ellipsis. But he says he's so confident with the ellipsis that he doesn't give his his patients the forearm option anymore. Wow. He just goes straight to ellipsis. You know, okay. Straight to the ellipsis. He's so confident with it. If they have a forearm option, I send them for a forearm. I don't. Before I used to give just have the discussion and give them the option. I don't give them the option anymore. I send them for a forearm. Forearm. Okay. I say you're you're going to get a forearm. The only exception to that is the geriatric patients. So if you're above 75, 80, if you're above 80, absolutely, I, I do the endo, endo fistula. And is that because not the risk of the surgery, but the anesthesia involved in the surgery or just putting them out? No, it's it's, it's about understanding that it, what's going to be their next access. Oh, I, I see. Yeah, they're not going right. to, I got you. They're not going to make it all the way they're up not gonna, the chain. And how many accesses do I need to be prepared for in an 80-year-old or an 88-year-old? My oldest is 89, right? 
with great vessels everywhere. But honestly, at 89, how many fistulas will this person need? So in that case, you take a, the operative risk and anesthesia risk and all the other kind of factors. And, and my confidence in maturation, right? That always is a primary factor. If I feel like I can do it and you've got a good radiocephalic, then let's just do the endo. So those patients, I proceed with the endo, the octogenarians. But anybody else, I will typically don't give them the option anymore. Some of the young patients, you know, the 20s and 30s are, are savvy. And in the early days, they used to kind of, a lot of, I mean, now they have done every, you know, the younger patients do their research. So they're like, can I do this or not, right? I, I have patients that come to me specifically asking, or I have, I've had a few patients that they were screened for an endofistula by somewhere else, were told no, and then they somehow found me and they said, I want your opinion on it. Can I do this or not? The younger patients are savvy, right? Initially, those patients I would do the endo on, you know, so yeah, so before it was if you were 20s and 30s and you fought me on it, it'd be fine, whatever, let's do it. Now, if you're 20 or 30, I fight back and I say, no, it's not the right thing for you because you're 29 and you are looking at 40 years on dialysis. And if you average five years per access, you know, if I've got three veins and that gives me 30 you know, in each arm, I've got 30 years. And so then you've got some graphs that are looking at three years per graft. And so I kind of fight back and I say, you really need a surgical radiocephalic. Now I just shunt everybody to the surgeons from that perspective. So switching gears a little bit and just talking about, I mean, so our last podcast was in 2020. You've been doing this. You were involved in the pitiful trial in 2016. You have some, maybe not data yet, but a good long-term feel about how some of these officials are doing. Like, how are they holding up? Like, so I want to know how they're holding up. And I also want to know, like, one of the things we touched upon was like downstream effects. Like, you know, for these endo-AVFs, what's it's like cephalic outflow, how's the arch holding up? Yeah. So this is the thing that is keeping it, that keeps me going, right? So kind of the general gist of it is an endofistula is more work to get it up and running. Do a surgical anastomosis, you can usually one and done it, right? Unless you get a juxta anastomotic lesion from it. But generally speaking, you can one and done and they're good to go. Here, most of my patients, both devices get a secondary procedure. I still feel like ellipsis gets it more than wavelength. Well, quantify that. A ulnar wavelength requires, I looked at this about two years into it just to kind of, you know, I, I had a fellow with me, so he needed a poster and I said, okay, look at my data and break it down for me. So from the early patients, it looked like the ulnar wavelengths required the fewest interventions to mature the fistula or fewer, right? Radial wavelengths required the most and ellipsis kind of fell in between. And I think ultimately that all boils down to what your artery size is, right? I think a bigger artery and you get a little bit bigger flow, you can get if you have more flow from the get-go, you can get more flow in the cephalic system. Ultimately, it's the target is 500 milliliters per minute of flow in your cephalic or median cubital to where I can run it on dialysis. So if I've got 1,000 of flow, as long as I got 500 at the top, I don't really care what, what, where the rest of it is, right? And that's where this downstream effect comes into play, is that if I've got a surgical anastomosis, one artery, one vein of a thousand and a thousand into that cephalic, well, that thousand is going all the way up through the arch and that's where you get your cephalic arch lesions. But now if I've got a thousand in a multi-outflow fistula where half of it's brachial or, you know, 40% is a brachial and that reduces my cephalic flow, well, I mean, this fistula has petered out and is basically normal nothing but before you even get to the cephalic arch. So 
the incidence of cephalic arch stenosis is low. A confident low. Nice. Okay. Very good. You know, I've got a few. Sure. But yeah, but it's nothing like what you're used to in a brachiocephalic fistula. Okay. Well, that's awesome. So, and also like along that same vein, like how are the fistulas, like more to get them up and running, but how are they holding up? Yeah. So typically once they're great, uh, yeah, it's done. It may be, maybe, maybe one intervention per year. And you know, the, the, um, on the ellipsis, they were able to follow the data out long enough to where they were looking at five years out on that initial data from the pivotal trial. And I think it was less than, I think it was 0.9 interventions per year per patient. It was low. And I, I believe it. And, and, and it's, and, and it's an endo, it's the endoanastomosis multi-outflow, right? So any device that creates a multi-outflow deep anastomosis, whether it be ellipsis, wavelength, or anything future that's going to come, right? If you can divide the outflow, it's the multi-outflow that I think is actually, that is beneficial. All I'm doing is I get enough flow into a cephalic vein for dialysis. And if I can keep it at 400, 500, great. If you can give me a consistent, you know, surgical anastomosis that would limit it to 500 flows, and maybe the VASCU device will do this, right? I mean, there's, there's surgical options kind of coming, right, for this also. It's not that, you know, an endo is better than surgical from this perspective. I think, an endo, I think it's the endo can consistently keep the cephalic flows lower than a surgical fistula can. So if you give me a tool or give the vascular surgeons, not me, a tool that can keep a brachiocephalic fistula at a low flow, 500, maybe 600 tops, you will see the same low cephalic arch disease. And so until the surgeons and the surgical world can recreate this reproducibly, right? It's about reproducibility. I know plenty of surgeons who are skilled enough that they can do it, but I've got 75 surgeons in Dallas that are making vascular access and some can and some can't. So it's about reproducibility. So you can create a reproducible cephalic vein flow of 500 mLs where I don't care what your anastomosis is, whether it's surgical or endo. Yeah, you will reduce your cephalic arch disease. And this goes back to the treatment algorithm. Let's go aside from an endo. You know, ASDIN put out a white paper a couple of years ago for cephalic arch management. And it's the algorithm really is no longer outflow, outflow, outflow. The algorithm is treat the outflow to a normal size, but then look at your inflow. And if your flows are above 12 or 1500 flow reduction. And so it's a combination of inflow and outflow. And it's about getting the flow reduced to where, yeah, I got enough for dialysis. And, and I think that the recommendations from the paper was to get it below 800 mLs. So keep a, keep a brachiocephalic fistula below 800 mLs, and that will reduce your outflow disease treat the outflow the first time. And if you over-treat it, because, you know, I know people that love hitting a cephalic arch with an eight. And if you do, that's fine. But then look, measure your brachial artery flows. And if it's too high, then, then band it. So it's, it's about reproducible flow moderation. And I think an endovascular fistula at this, you know, in 2023, an endovascular fistula provides more reproducible flow moderation than a surgical fistula that has nothing done to it. And you have a surgical fistula and you go and flow reduce it and band it. And you can then, and if you do that, then I think you'll get the same outcomes from an endovascular. Yeah, you'll get, then it'll match, right? It's all about the flow that hits the cephalic arch. Gotcha. All right. So in broad strokes, like the thing that I have in my outline is talk about successes, talk about failures. And, you know, I'll kind of leave it up into your hands. Like now that you look back on, you know, 
getting close to a decade of experience with the ellipsis and then five years of experience with the wavelength. Um, what's been like the biggest successes that like kind of resonate with you and what have been like the biggest failures or hurdles that you've had to overcome? Okay. What do you want to do first? Bad news first, right? Yeah. Okay. There's always more bad news than there's good news. Yeah. Start with the bad, start with the bad and we'll end on a high note. Okay. So, uh, failures. So there's two, you know, the ones that don't work, I think are, again, it boils down to understanding what the flow is supposed to be and why the flow isn't there. So I, I kind of look at it in terms of, okay, what is my target? My target, the, there's a, there was also an ASDN white paper on endovascular fistula, and I'll, I'll, I'll send you that one, that link as well. Okay. Because th they kind of have defined what your target should be. And I think your target is a brachial artery flow above 800 mLs per minute with your target cannulation vessel flow of 500 mLs per minute. So allowance of 300 to go wherever, who cares? And so this is kind of how I look at failures. There's two types. One type, you're going to look at a low flow fistula. So that brachial artery flow is never sufficient to either mature the fistula or support dialysis. And so when we talk about maturation, there's two, two kind of terminologies that have now kind of evolved. So one is physiological maturation, one is clinical maturation. And so this physiological maturation is, you know, and this was kind of after the index paper. So the, the ellipsis pivotal and the neat for the wavelength, they define mature as 500 in the brachial artery. And so that was the definition of a mature fistula for that paper. But if you've got 500 in the, in the artery, remember it's going to be divided between multiple vessels. You may not get enough to dialyze that patient with. So you will get enough to increase vein size and augment the fistula volume and size-wise. So that's why we kind of, so 500 brachial arteries, kind of what I look at, at physiological maturation. If I've got 500 in the brachial artery, I expect that vein diameter to continue growing. And the analogy I tell my patients when I try to explain to them how this works and, and whatnot is kind of like, there's a highway in, in Dallas, I-35, that is constantly under construction. Since I've moved to Dallas 15 years ago, it's been under construction. And what I tell the patients is like, you know how 35 is? I said, you add another lane and what happens? Well, you immediately get more traffic to where the city says that wasn't enough. We need another lane. And I think fistula growth is kind of the similar. So if I get enough flow into the vein of 500, right, then the fistula is going to get bigger. And as soon as it gets bigger, then it should be able to accommodate more flow. So the 500 becomes 600, but then the 600 makes it bigger to where it becomes 700. So if you can kind of hit that target of 500, you will kind of look for and anticipate that growth to 800 to where 500 is encephalic, right? And so, and that's kind of where I say, sometimes you get stuck in that range of 500, 800 that we say, okay, fine. It's not doing what I needed to. Let's go boost it. Hence intervention. So one intervention is either it's never below above 500. Every month they come in and you're sitting at 350, 400, 350, 400, 350, 400. So it is a low flow fistula failure. And typically that's your anastomosis. It's either anastomosis or juxta anastomotic lesion. And so that's always angioplasty. That's an easy wire it angioplasty to anastomosis, right? Hit it with a five, hit it with a six. Now I just always hit it with a six. Ooh, cutting balloons. Remind me to come back to cutting balloons. Okay. Hold on. How, how delicate are the anastomosis? Like, um... Oh, they're solid. They're oh, okay. Fine. Okay. All right. Good, good. Like from the get-go, like right off the bat. So not, not an issue. So if it's a low flow failure, then you need to plasty the anastomosis. Okay. If it's a high flow failure, 
your brachial artery flow is a thousand mLs per minute. So clearly something has developed, but you measure all of that flow is brachial vein, right? So, or most of that flow more than, so again, so if I've got a brachial artery above 500 or above or at 800, but my target vein is not 500, right? So that, let's go back to the white paper criteria. Target vein of 500 is not there. That means it's all deep. It's all brachial. So that's kind of those patients that I was just like, those failures are the harder ones to mature because I need to redirect it to the surface, which was what we talked about earlier, right? So if you go in and you just coil, 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 you're going to not address, I think in that scenario, high brachial artery, low superficial vein, it's a perforating vein stenosis that you have to go angioplasty perforator. Now, the reality is, is if you put a 6-4 balloon in your radio, you know, for an ellipsis, and you use it, plasty it with a 6-4, you're going to cover it all anyway, right? So you're going to treat it all anyway. If you do it on the ulnar side, you use a four centimeter balloon, you're going to hit the base of the perforator anyway, right? You come across the anastomosis, you're going to hit it anyway. So everybody was doing it, but it was, well, how come I needed, sometimes it was high and it was, sometimes it was low and it was, so then I started kind of teasing out. So I, I really have it, the treatment is really in reality the same. You're going to angioplasty anastomosis. You're going to angioplasty perforator all in one fell swoop. So if you don't care and just hit just bottom line, the angioplasty, you don't care. Right. But the reality is if it's a low flow, your lesion is going to be an anastomotic lesion. If it's a high flow, it's because you've got perforating stenosis. So all of your flow is going either radial vein or ulnar vein into your deep system. And that's where instead of coiling you know, so if I've done a coil or a second coil to be occlusive on a wavelength patient, instead of coiling it, I will now just drop a Viabon because the Viabon directs all of that flow up into the superficial system. Then, So that takes care of my flow diversion. It's a great technique for flow diversion. Okay. Hold on. You wanted me to circle back to something. Cutting balloons, you're going to mention something? So cutting balloons. So here's the thing. I don't know why, but these, a lot of times I would do an angioplasty and do another angioplasty and, and numbers look great. And I get in the basement and I get, you know, waste resolution on the angioplasty balloon. I use a Sterling angioplasty balloon. If I'm coming through the artery, I do the O1, you know, a four French sheath and I do a Sterling four French balloon. So the burst on it is what, 12 or 14. And, you know, I'll push it to 20, like 18, 20. And so sometimes I, I wouldn't get waste resolution at 20. And so then it's kind of like, well, what do you do then? Right. And initially I would just kind of leave it alone, uh, but then they come and flow because it's always brachial artery flow post-amate angioplasty on the table post-angioplasty, right? And it would come up to a thousand, like, oh, great. And then they come back next month again and they're back down to 400, right? And so I'd hit that a few times. And so, well, then it was a failure to mature and I convert them to a surgical fistula. So probably when I was, when I, when we spoke last, I was sending a lot of patients for surgical conversions because... I could never get it clinically mature. Then I started using some conquest balloons and it was a matter of comfort level, right? In the sense that, you know, it, but the conquest requires a six. So then it was upsizing to a six or if they're radial artery, you know, at the wrist, which is, you know, a healthy patient is fine. A dialysis patient, yeah, you don't have a lot of room sometimes. Few and far, right? Yeah. <laughs> so if the radial artery ulnar is really, I mean, ulnars typically get kind of small at the wrist. The radials tend to stay reasonable. You know, but a six slender is a two millimeter diameter. Most RAs at the wrist are one seven, one eight. 
And so, and, and, you know, and going through kind of all the, the IR literature, your radial artery occlusion rates are all basically, I mean, it, it seems like it comes down to, you know, duration of the case and how long the, the sheath is in there and sheath diameter versus RA diameter size, right? I mean, you think that's reasonable assumption to say? I think that's a reasonable assumption and also like how long you keep in the, uh, the band on after. Yeah. And right. And the band, right. And so, uh, but the bands are, are non-inclusive, are, you know, non-inclusive, right. That's patent. So yeah. yeah, that, yeah. That yeah. Should, if, so if you're, I, I should say like technique on the band. Yeah. Right. If you have patent hemostasis, that should take care of that. Absolutely. And so that's why I made the decision. I just, all my RA stuff is, you know, all his wrist stuff is four, is four friends based. So if I need a six French sheath, usually I stick the cephalic vein retrograde. And I will floss a wire between both sheaths and then I'll bring the bigger stuff in that way. And same with the Viabon. If I need to Viabon it, I do the same thing. It's actually from the Venus approach. Question, why not just stick the cephalic vein from the get-go and just do everything from that way? Uh, you can, and not even hit, use the wrist artery. You can, but since it's a multi-outflow, a lot of times wiring across the anastomosis is a challenge. So if I think it's a perforating vein stenosis, if I'm confident it's a perforating vein stenosis and I don't need to be in the anastomosis, right? I can wire down perf. I can wire, let the wire go into ulnar vein and wherever it goes and angioplasty perf alone, and that's fine. But if I need to cross into the artery, most of the time finding the wire into the artery, it, it just finds another vein. Yeah, yeah, I get you. There's just too many options. Right. It just takes yeah. more work. It, it's doable. Sure. Yeah, it yeah, just yeah, takes yeah. more okay, time. Right. Versus you come through the artery, or there's only one place to go. Boom, boom. And yeah, yeah, yeah. you can get it up the, up the perf most of the time. So I always just, you know, it, it, it's, it's like everything else. I, I just got to, in addition to making sure I do all of this, I have to make sure, well, how much time do I have and what's my next patient and what's our schedule like for the day and we got 15 cases on. I can't, I don't want to spend the time looking for an anastomosis. Hold on. Where does the cutting balloon come in? Is The Conquest isn't a cutting the balloon. The Conquest is, is not. The Conquest is, a, is your ultra high pressure balloon, right? At 40. Yeah, just that high pressure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So going back to that scenario where I would not get full effacement or these patients that were becoming problematic and, and recurrent interventions to where I would abandon the endoanastomosis and the endofistula. So then I moved to Conquest balloons and it required probably 30 atmospheres to break most of them. I had some that 30 plus did not break. And in a perforating vein only, I'm confident cranking at 30 plus, but into the artery, I, don't, I mean, I don't know, maybe as, I'm just waiting for a surgeon to tell me, yeah, Nagaya, you can put 40 in an RA, a six millimeter balloon at 40 in an RA, that's two millimeters and you'll be fine. You know, I'm just, I just don't feel comfortable with that, right? So that's when I shifted to cutting balloons and and it was kind of discussions with a few other guys that I was working with that were independent and like, hey, how do you handle this? And somebody threw out cutting balloons in there. I'm like, well, okay, let's try one. And the cutting balloon, it will efface that lesion at eight atmospheres. Really? Okay. Boom. I mean, you'll see it. All of my angioplasties I do under ultrasound because I can position the balloon better. You know, under fluoro, because you're now more vertical than you are horizontal under fluoro. Oh, uh, I, I never even thought about that. Okay. Right. Yeah, yeah, Hard yeah. Hard to see where your balloon really is. You can slide it back and forth and have no idea where that balloon is. So balloon positioning in angioplasty is always under ultrasound at the deep level. And that way I know exactly how much is in the artery and how much is in the vein or where in the vein, right? And the same with stent positioning is I, get, I, I position the stent under ultrasound. So ultrasound is part of the case, not just for vessel access. But the cutting balloon, and I don't know why... Right, because in the surgical literature, cutting balloons 
came out, they kind of eh, didn't really work and nobody uses them aggressively. I may have one or two times where I'm just like, well, okay, I'll drop a cutting balloon here, but try something. I think in the endovascular world, cutting balloons have, you know, aggressive use has actually, I think, saved me from sending a lot of these patients to a surgical conversion. And so then I'll, I'll I just cut it with a, and, and so now I use a six cutter, basically. I use a six millimeter balloon on everything. The radial or ulnar, it's just a six. And so I start with a six angioplast standard, kind of the sterling up to 20. If I don't get full effacement, it's automatic cutter. And that's a six. I, and, and so now it's a six. It used to be six balloon. So early days, it was five balloon on everything, right? And then if it didn't work, I'd go up to a six. And then it was like, well, everybody does fine with the six. So now six is my standard. And then it was six balloon, five cutter or five point quest, five cutter, and then come back with a standard, the sterling six again. And now I just six cutter as well. Okay. So, um, I had enough cases with the conquest where I was not satisfied with the conquest to where I just don't do the conquest. Okay. Yeah. So, so now you just like taking out high pressure balloons and you just go straight cutting balloon. Okay. I just go straight cutter. Very slow. So I, so I, kind of my working algorithm was you know, six Serling, six Conquest, five Conquest, six Conquest. Uh, and then on a few cases, I would end up with a six cutter after the Conquest. So now I just kind of skip the Conquest and I just go straight cutter. I'm, con I'm confident with the ability of the cutting balloon to get these things up and running. And these anastomotic lesions, these juxta anastomotic lesions, and sometimes they're tied under fluoro and you'll see it. And when you ultrasound it, it's tight. And if you don't get full abasement at 20, just cut it. That'll take care of it. Eight to 10 are usually on the cutter, we'll take care of it. And then that thing suddenly hits 1,000, 1,100 mLs per minute of brachial artery flows. It just, and I, I, don't, I don't know why it's required here where it's not required on a surgical anastomosis, right? If there is a fibrotic reaction here from, you know, device, energy, heat, who, who knows? But I would love for, you know, a surgeon that has a failed endoanastomosis to actually for only for intellectual curiosity to dissect down to it, make a brachiocephalic anastomosis for me, and then dive down to the endoanastomosis and send that off to PATH to tell me what happened and what's different about that versus standard VNH. It's an intellectual question. Does it matter? No. So, you know, those are kind of the failures. So what do I do now that I didn't do three years ago when we talked, right? I actually do less patients because of brachial vein anatomy. In terms of maturation, I stent, I coil fewer patients, I stent more patients, and I cut most of my patients. And actually the cutter has actually reduced my stent. The stents came on board and then cutters came on board and my cutting balloons have actually reduced my stent usage too. So yeah, so that, that's what I would say is, is grab a cutting balloon. It'll, it works wonders. Have you found that the cutting balloon has now creeped into your other fistula maintenance? Like in the- It has again. Okay. Nice. It has. I mean, I used to use like maybe one cutting balloon a year. And now I'm just like, okay, fine. On, on a fish, the one, I, give me a cutter. And where I'm using it actually is on a juxtanastomotic lesion or the arterial anastomosis for graft. And to where I think, you know, okay, fine. You need a surgical revision. And this guy comes in for a declot, declot, declot. And it's always the anastomosis. Well, now I'm like, well, you still need a surgical revision, but let me just throw a cutter in there and maybe that'll buy you. It buys him a little bit more time, right? And so it gives me a little longer of a window now to, so I'm using the cutters at the anastomosis for surgical access also. For outflow, I just, I just stent it. But for inflow where I don't want to stent it, 
Now I'm, I'm grabbing the cutter a little more frequently now. Okay. Hold on. So when you were talking about, I hate to like take a, a sideway into this. Um, when you were talking about what you stented, what, what was it that you stented? Like on the outflow, the venous anastomosis? Yeah. So for surgical access, I don't use cutters. So you were asking if I, if I use the cutters now for surgical access also. And I do, but not for outflow lesions. For out, if it's an outflow lesion, right, I'll just drop a, I'll just drop a covered stent. Right. You know, I've got the Vibons, Coveras, I'll just drop a covered stent. If it's an inflow lesion for a surgical access, I will now occasionally grab a cutting balloon. Hold on. What are you, hold on. So what are you stenting? Is it like native fistulas or are you talking about grafts? Oh, oh any, whatever it needs, whatever it needs. Yeah. On the graft, it's venous anastomosis. Okay. Uh, for native, it's usually the uh, cephalic arch. Oh, okay. Okay. Gotcha. Right. All right. All right. So we're coming up on the hour. Anything else that I didn't bring up in the guy that- Okay. So successes. You wanted to end on successes. Yeah, that's right. Right. Although I felt like the cutting balloon was like, I was like, oh, I, I couldn't remember. I was like, oh, this all kind of sounds success. Yes. Cutting, cutting balloon is a success. It is a, is a success in that it transitioned me from my failure rate to <laughs> a higher success rate. All right. All right. Good. Right? All right. Yeah. So uh, successes. Successes. So um, two things that I think I really, I think three things, I think really what make this stand out and what makes worth, this worth fighting for. One, we've gotten into this. I think your superficial disease is much, much less your cephalic arch lesions and all of that kind of stuff. All the interventions happen at the deep level. All the problems happen at the deep level. So even once they're up and running, most of the time it's just anastomose, endoanastomosis, perforating vein, and you're pretty much done. Occasionally some kind of cannulation zone stenosis kind of thing. Most of the time it stays deep. So your superficial outflow is much, much better. Uh, I genuinely believe that. Second is your patients with a basilic only outflow. So perforating vein communicates median cubital vein to your basilic vein, right? Those patients that would have gotten a basilic, if so, if that was a surgical fistula, you're looking at basilic vein transposition. And so think about your operative kind of involvement there, long incision or multiple skip lesions, more, you know, healing of a surgical access. That's probably the most involved. Okay. Right. Fair. Because your anastomosis is now in the proximal forearm and you have that length of the median cubital vein, well, I have now, you know, the majority of my endobasilics do not require surgical transposition after. You just cannulate both in the needles and the median. Oh, so there's enough runway. There's enough runway. You've got yourself an extra six, eight centimeters from a surgical BVT that these patients no longer require. The overwhelming majority of them don't. And so I think a lot of people, and I, I knew a few surgeons even you know, that, that I've talked to across the country, they're like, yeah, this is a great way to do stage one. And then I just come back, you know, stage one basilic vein. Then I come back later and I do the transposition. Well, you really need to because you don't. And so I know one or two and they, they will admit that they didn't believe me at first, but they've seen enough from me to where, yeah. And, and you know, now the educators from the devices are proficient enough in teaching medium cubital cannulation that, you know, a basilic transposition is, I think, no longer required. Right. And so most of my patients are cannulation only. Sometimes I can get one needle in, but the second needle, the higher needle, is a little problematic. And so then it's just a small incision and elevate median cubital vein, basilic vein kind of transition for needle number two. So still not a full transposition. It's just a it's just a lift. Yeah, that's very right? slick. And that's probably like very helpful for different body habitus or patients who are right. like poor surgical candidates. Um and so and on the, on the cephalic side, 
the patients that have a deep cephalic vein that require superficialization, right, is that depth is usually in the upper arm, but in the cubital fossa where that cephalic vein sits there, it's still pretty superficial. So even bigger arms that initially I thought, and I tell them, you're probably going to need a superficialization on your cephalic. Well, then as the vein matures, and sometimes I get pretty aggressive, you know, there was a few patients I'd get into that cephalic with a seven, eight millimeter to really dilate it up. Well, then I brought it close enough to the surface and I say, yeah, you've got enough runway and you don't need to superficialize the cephalic as well because you're keeping your needles into that cubital fossa. And so I think that's the, you know, it's the subsequent surgical interventions that are required for cannulation uh, because of the extra real estate of a proximal forearm anastomosis, you can minimize that. So I, I consider that a win. I think these endobacillics that don't require mobilization of the basilic vein, huge win. And the reality is, is because my cannulation is meeting cubital vein and, you know, usually not into the, sometimes one needle goes into basilic vein proper, but most of the time it's two into meeting cubital. If that section ever goes down or my endoanastomosis ever goes down, that basilic vein is completely untouched for a proper BVT. Cool. Very nice. So it, it's always about, well, yeah, how do I do step. this though? What's next? Yep. You always have to think about what's next, right? So that's, that's I think, win number two. Uh, win number three, and I think, you know, we discount this as physicians a lot. It's just the cosmetic factor of it. Ah, it's a little incision. It's a little scar. It's a little aneurysm. I mean, it's not the end of the world, right? But for patients, I think that's a, you know, a huge factor. And I think the cosmetic appeal of an endofistula is, it's real, right? It's one of those things that if you get a buttonhole, I mean, I've got, and uh, most of my patients are buttonhole patients. I mean, three years out, all you see is the two little scabs from the buttonholes that from a distance, they just look like moles. Nobody knows. You don't get the big dilated vein typically. I mean, some do get aneurysmal, some get prominent, but again, the, uh, it, it's much less than you see in a surgical fistula, right? And so I think generally speaking, the cosmetic factor of this is really appealing as the patient, right? From my perspective, yeah, okay, fine. Uh, it, as long as it does its job, I don't care what it looks like. That's kind of the attitude we want to take, right? But from the patient perspective, it's a huge factor because they sit there on dialysis and, you know, and part of the people are skeptical because they're like, well, you know, I, I see what those arms look like. Yeah, not yours. And the ones who are happiest about the cosmetic factors are the ones who get transplanted because now they feel like a normal person, but they still look like a dial. You know, if you've got a, an aneurysmal accept, you feel like a normal person, but you look like a dialysis patient. But if you've got an endo access, you feel like a normal person and you look like a normal person. And nobody even, they don't have to explain what the, you know, their arm. And because people, you know, they're five years out on transplant, but people are like, oh, what's that on your arm? And they still have to explain I was on dialysis. And, and some people have no problem doing that. And some people don't want to have to do that. And, you know, an endo patient gets a transplant and and that's it. If he never wants to mention dialysis and kidney failure to anybody ever again, no one would, no one would assume wiser and ask. So, so I, I really think that that's the, you want to talk about successes. I think those are the three that I think are, are worth fighting for. It's a fight. Those are the three that I think make it worth fighting for. Cool. Well, I think, uh, I'm sure your patients appreciate you, uh, doing the hard work for them, the guy. And, um, thank you. You know, I appreciate you coming on the show. Um, thanks for coming in on Saturday and spending an hour with us. I know. I, I like talking to you guys and it's always fun to go back and forth when it's open. I mean, you just keep it open. That's right. right. That's what we're here for. Oh, one last thing I was going to say. So I'll, I'll definitely link to the papers that we mentioned. I'll, I'll try and get those from you offline and then we'll 
put them in the show notes. If someone's just like wanting to get started in this space, like so they haven't done any procedures, don't have anything under their belt, can you just throw out some like helpful resources like for the first steps that they might want to take as far as like educating themselves or if they want to start building this practice where they can look to? So I think the ASDN white paper on on endovascular fistula is a good kind of starting point. You know, there's good literature out there in terms of outcomes, but there's, you know, this is kind of a, a nice kind of summary in terms of what should your, you know, what are you screening for? What are your, your maturation approach, right? What's, what's a d- definition of a success? Because ultimately the definition of success, it doesn't matter, you know, what my numbers are and what my Doppler show. The definition of success is two needle dials. And if I can't do that, I don't care how much flow is through any access. If I can't have, if the dialysis tech can't stick it, it's a failure. And so, so I think that's a, a good place to start. And then I think it's a matter of hitting up, you know, people that are, you know, and people are welcome to, you know, reach out to me anytime talking to people, Hey, you know, and, and now there's, I mean, I'm not the expert, right? There are so many experts across the country and across the world now that have done enough of this. It's easy to find somebody local to do. And then it's reaching out to industry because industry has done really well to supporting this and getting kind of, you know, education from them. And, and, and I think both devices have online resources. They have, they used to have virtual references. They used to have in-person kind of education. And so and getting industry kind of to help you guide, you get set up with your practice and, and your, and, and they recognize that education is not from a, you know, it's not about the index procedure, but it's about the screening and it's about the maturation and it's about the cannulation. And so both companies are very good at seeing it all the way through from one to the other. That's good. All right. I appreciate it. The guy. Thank you. I did want to mention, you know, because this is also something new that's changed. Uh, the ASDIN, the American Society of Diagnostic and Interventional Nephrology, you know, offers certification in multiple special, you know, procedures that are done. Uh, percutaneous endovascular fistula is one of them. So now you can become certified in endo-AVF through the ASDIN. And so this is something I think that, uh, you know, I think everyone should get done because it, you know, it, and it's like any, any other certification, but they're the first to offer it. And so I wanted to make sure that everyone was aware that it's out there. You know, if you're in a freestanding ASC, it's not a big deal. Hospitals sure. right now are not requiring, but as things evolve, right, then people are going to come in and especially for new providers and say, hey, how do we know that you're really, you know, capable? And just like anything else, right, you, you, the certification always helps eventually. At some point, it's going to get big enough and mainstream enough, right? Right now, endo-AVF is still an outlier. So uh, as things evolve and certification becomes an issue and will start to matter in certain facilities, know that uh, ASDIN does offer certification. Uh, I think it's um, 20 creation cases and five maturation cases is the case log that's required for each device. And you can choose which device uh, in technology and to get certified in. You can get certified in both, actually. It's all the same application. It's just a matter of submitting it all at the same time. Nice. Okay, good tip. Um, did you get certified? I am. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually on the, I'm, I'm on the certification committee too. So. Oh, well, good that you're certified. Um, painless process. You make it painless for people. Yeah. yeah it, it, it's, it's really straightforward. It's cool. not, it's not a big, it, again, it's just submitting that you've done the, the minimum that, uh, that people have kind of decided is, you know, yeah, once you hit 20 cases, you kind of know what you're doing and, and how it's going. And if you can show you've done five maturation cases, then, then that's a good, good enough to where you can, you can get your certification. So 20 ellipsis, 20 wavelength cases, and you can get certified, you know, uh, for both at the same time. Uh, or you can get sort of, you know, we've talked about people adding on device. You can get certified in one. And then I think you can add on the other one, add on the other one later. Uh, once you've got that case number built. Okay. Awesome. We'll definitely include it in the show. Thank you again. 
to our audience. Thank everyone for listening. If you enjoyed the show, um, but want more, check out the show notes. We're going to pack them with some um, references that we mentioned during the episode. Those can be found at www.backtable.com. And remember the show notes are where you can find some link to free CME. So please check it out. And also remember, check out our new show, Backtable MSK with Jacob Fleming. If you like the introduction music to that show, let Jacob know. I think it's all original. I think it's written and composed by him. So please let the good Dr. Fleming know that you enjoyed it. For others interested in supporting the show, like, subscribe, and share this podcast out on social media, or just go old school, tell somebody about it, tell a colleague. Old-fashioned word of mouth is very helpful as we continue to build this community. That wraps things up. We'll see you next time on the Back to Bill Podcast. The guy, thanks for coming in, man. Chris, thanks for having me again. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, Jacob Fleming, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim Louis Kinnebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. 